Welcome to the Hopkins Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeske with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Our guests today are David Beavers and Jennifer Hochschild. David Beavers is a PhD candidate in the government department at Harvard University and an affiliate of the Center for American Political Studies. Jennifer Hochschild is the Henry Labar Jane Professor of Government and Professor of African American Studies at Harvard University. She holds lectureships in the Harvard Kennedy School and the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Their recent paper, Learning from Experience, COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories and Their Implications for Democratic Discourse, was published in the fall 2022 issue of the journal Social Research, an issue that explores the concept of conspiracy theories. Their study looked at coronavirus-related conspiracy narratives in the United States across the continuum of political affiliation. They joined us today to discuss their research and how what they found surprised them. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer and David. I really appreciate your time talking about this really interesting research. Thank you for inviting us. We're delighted. Happy to be here. The first question we like to ask all our guests is, what is your academic origin story? How did you come to study your area of academic focus? Uh, well, I've been in this business a whole lot longer than David, so I will start very quickly. Um, I spent a fair amount of time as an undergraduate. I wanted to be a judge, but then I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be an ambassador, but I didn't want to work at the State Department. <laughs> I wanted to be a psychologist, but I didn't get admitted to any graduate schools in psychology. Um, so basically, I got admitted to the only political science department that I applied to in graduate school. There's a longer story behind that, but I'll spare you. <laughs> and... I've worked on a variety of issues over many years, mostly with a focus on racial and ethnic politics, uh, both in terms of public opinion and belief systems, but also in terms of institution design, institutions and so on. Um, so I'm uh, I'm in my third year of grad school in the PhD program at Harvard in the government department. Before starting grad school a few years ago, I spent about five years at Politico in Washington, DC. Oh, interesting. I'm in various capacities, most recently as a senior web editor and as a contributor to Politico's influence newsletter covering lobbying and money in politics. I joined the newsroom, I think about six days after Donald Trump was inaugurated. So even though my tenure as a journalist was relatively short-lived in some ways, I feel like I, I have about two decades of experience <laughs> in those four years in the newsroom. And as you can imagine, I uh, saw the word unprecedented in a lot of copy and in a lot of conversations while I was at Politico. And over time in the newsroom, I kind of find, found myself wanting to um, understand this peculiar moment in American politics uh, in a bit of a deeper manner and to situate it more firmly in American political history, both of which uh, ultimately kind of drove me towards applying to grad school. Your paper, which is titled Learning from Experience, COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories and Their Implications for Democratic Discourse, is featured in the latest issue of Social Research, which the whole issue uh, focuses on conspiracy thinking. What led you to want to examine conspiracy theories? Was this something that you were already investigating prior to COVID-19, or did the pandemic itself spark your interest in that topic? Uh, well, I can start. Um, I have been interested in the question. I published a book uh, called Do Facts Matter? Uh, information and Misinformation in American Politics five or six years ago, co-authored with a former student, now a wonderful colleague, um, Katie Einstein. And so I've been interested in the topic of 
misinformation, disinformation for many years. Uh, I think it goes out of my research on racial and ethnic politics because, you know, I grew up in a good liberal family and things seemed like it seemed fairly self-evident to me that people ought to be able to marry who they want to. They ought to go to schools that are good schools near their house. They ought to you know, vote for the best candidate. I mean, that, you know, kind of, I, I was a classic 1960s liberal kid. Um, and it turns out when you study racial politics, a lot of people don't hold those same views. Um, and so that, and, and a lot of people not only don't hold the same views, which is not surprising, but they they hold what was clearly to me wrong views. Mm -hmm. um, and so that led me in the direction of studying misinformation, not just lack of information or biases. Um, and so the misinformation then, again, once as the Trump era began, uh, and particularly the COVID era, misinformation slides relatively quickly into not just knowing the wrong things, but believing that somebody out there is doing something terrible to us and that that's a factual statement about the way the world works. So, so from my perspective, misinformation, which I've been studying for years, slid pretty readily into conspiracies, mm -hmm. which is kind of how I got to this. I think David got to it more straightforwardly. I, straightforwardly, yeah. I think that's probably a fair word to say. I, I had certainly been following um, kind of public opinion about uh, QAnon and other sort of conspiracy theories de jour in American politics before coming to grad school. I had, you know, not exactly unique to me, but like many others, I'd I'd seen some of the kind of ugly effects of conspiracism um, run their course in personal relationships as well as from my time in DC. So when I started grad school and what was it, the fall of 2020, I, I came in with the intent of studying conspiracy theories. Um, even, you know, this was just barely over two years ago that I started, I think, I got a few raised eyebrows when I came in saying that I wanted to study conspiracy theories. And I feel like two years later, everyone is saying, oh, yeah, of course, you want to study conspiracy theories. Right. So in reality, I probably should have started grad school about four years earlier, because mm. then I would have been uh, completing my dissertation at a time where this would be uh, kind of a hot topic. But um, no, in all seriousness, I I, um, I very much came into grad school with the intention of, of studying conspiracy theories and in uh, other sort of projects that are uh, in much earlier stages. I'm interested in in uh, voters' evaluations of conspiracy endorsing candidates, folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and, and whether the degree to which voters um, are attracted to such candidates sort of because of or in spite of their, call it, peculiar belief systems. Um, so this is certainly uh, something that I hope to be a, a fairly central part of my research agenda. Let me add one last quick thing. Of I, course. I, having been a professor for many, many years, of course, I I don't teach facts. I don't think any good teacher simply does that. Mm. But but I do care a lot about my students knowing important information, at least knowing how to find it and knowing how to put it in context. And so, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. And so the whole question of misinformation and especially the magnification into conspiracies violates some core principles I hold about my own job hmm. and about what, an, again, educated, not necessarily literally college-educated, but a, a knowledgeable person in the world ought to be able to do, which is figure out not morally right from wrong, but factually, empirically right from wrong. Mm -hmm. Does the sun rise in the east or the west? 
you know, is, is there a child slavery system going on in the basement of a pizzeria? Um, and so it, there's some some very deep uh, commitment that's just violated by conspiracies, mm-hmm. except for the ones that I hold, which of course are entirely true, right? And, you know, so, so it, right. it's not an easy question, but right. but there's some very deep. In- it's deep. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I completely agree with you. It, and it's frightening. It really is kind of the more you read about it, the more it, the, for me, the, the realization and much like you, you know, I was raised in Montgomery County, Maryland in my liberal bubble. But when you start to understand how deeply some people believe in these things that are just what you don't, you can't even wrap your head around. It does. It, it gives you a chill, I think. And so that I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And the scariest part of it, of course, is, is the joke that I was making. I, you know, I am not prepared that I don't hold any of these myself. How did the two of you uh, come to work together on this paper? Um, kind of by accident. I, <laughs> as David said, he and of course the rest of his cohort came in the fall of 2020. And we hadn't worked together and spring of 2020, you know, everything fell apart. And I guess by the fall of 2021, I've lost the timing a little bit, David. I just sent a note around to a couple of the first and second year graduate students saying, I don't know you, you know, we've never seen each other in person. Anybody want to work on a paper? Um, And partly it was just a way of trying to make connection. And partly I'm a qualitative researcher, not a quantitative researcher. And it turns out I really need graduate students as co-authors, partly because they're smart (laughs) as hell and partly because they know how to do work that I don't know how to do. So Mm -hmm. it was sort of an open invitation and David responded. That's right. I'll add one thing though. Um, it was the it was the fall of it was October 2020. I, I can remember the very specific timeline because I think Jennifer neglected to mention the one um, actual sort of onus behind this paper. Um, it's an easy thing to forget because the paper has uh, shifted in terms of our focus quite a bit since then. It was when uh, then President Trump was diagnosed with COVID ah. in early October of 2020. Um, I think Jennifer emailed, it must have either been that day or perhaps like the next day, it was really right after it happened, mm-hmm. um, asking if anyone would be interested in, in working on a paper uh, or some sort of project. I mean, we even thought maybe this would just be kind of a monkey cage blog or, or something very short. And of course, here we are, you know, over two years later and we right. are kind of projects in the work. So, you know, a blog post, it was not. Um, But we were curious to see if Trump's own COVID diagnosis would act as sort of a come to Jesus moment for his Mm. COVID skeptic supporters. This was, of course, before we knew how serious his bout with COVID was. Was he going to make a full and speedy recovery in a couple of days? Was he going to be on life support for three weeks? I mean, we had no idea. And obviously, we had no idea what the kind of downstream effects in terms of public attitudes were going to be about COVID. And and when it seemed like the you know news cycle about Trump's relatively short bout with COVID kind of played its course within a week or two, um, it, it seemed pretty clear that it wasn't going to be this huge paradigm shift in terms of partisan alignments around uh, 
attitudes about COVID-19, but it did kind of push us down this eventual path that, that mm. led to this paper. And like I mentioned, another couple projects we have on uh, kind of broadly speaking, COVID-19, partisan motivated reasoning, mis and disinformation and conspiracism. So uh, your your study your study is a, a quantitative one, which uh, Jennifer you just mentioned, which is actually pretty rare for this journal for social research. Um, what led you to submit to this particular issue of the journal? I got an invitation. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> it fit, and and the theme fits pretty squarely. Um, but I think, it, but it's a, it, I really what I like so much about the paper was how well it it sits in both camps um, and how perfectly it sits among all the other papers in the in the issue. In your research, you examined the rate that people's beliefs about certain COVID-related conspiracies changed alongside the infection and mortality rates of the disease in their actual immediate community, um, also uh, their political affiliation, and also uh, national media messaging about COVID that was going on at the time, which is a, a lot of, of, of factors. Can you tell us, how did you, how did you pull those data sets? Where did all that come from? Sure, I'm happy to I'm happy to start tackling this one and, and feel free to cut me off if I get too long-winded on this because like you say, basically three main uh, sources of data that we used for this paper. Um, the most important was um, this extremely rich survey data that we got from YouGov from a series of rolling cross-sectional surveys they conducted on, on behalf of the economists were deeply uh, grateful and indebted to Doug Rivers at UGov and to Joe Williams at UGov, who who both gave us permission to use this data uh, as well as helped compile it on our behalf. Um, these are a series of weekly surveys of about fifteen hundred Americans uh, each week mm -hmm. that UGov has been conducting for the Economist. To my knowledge, they're still ongoing. They've been doing these for every week for months and for for several years now, they're just incredibly rich source of data that we're, that we're using in another project as we speak. Um, in this paper, we, we really specifically used, in addition to you know, individual level demographics, um, we focused on nine uh, conspiracy items um, that measured respondents' um, support for basically belief that COVID-19 was a hoax, was a fraud perpetrated by the deep state, that the government was concealing the true scale of the COVID pandemic, et cetera. So that was the main source of data. The other two sources were uh, on local incidents of COVID cases and fatalities. This data came from uh, Microsoft AI for Health. They in turn got uh, their data from, I believe the New York Times and the World Health Organization. Uh, conveniently for us, Microsoft had compiled COVID-19 case and fatality data um, at the congressional district level, uh. which was helpful because that was the level of geolocation that our survey data had. We had um, individuals, congressional district. So we were able to cleanly match the COVID incidence data from Microsoft uh, on a daily level to survey respondents kind of local um, local area in the form of congressional district. Finally, for the media portion of the analysis, we decided to build a corpus of broadcast media transcripts from the two most popular shows in 2020 on Fox News, those being Hannity and Tucker Carlson Tonight, and the two most popular shows on MSNBC, which were the Rachel Maddow Show and The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. 
we use Factiva to download uh, all of those transcripts, which mentioned the pandemic using keywords like COVID, coronavirus, pandemic, um, for a total of a little bit over 800 transcripts. You can imagine, given just how historic this event was, beginning in early March, just about every single day and right. for each of those shows, they were mentioning the pandemic for the rest of the year. Um, our actual analysis of the that that data set, the media transcript data set, was relatively simplistic for this project. We just performed keyword searches that corresponded to the kind of key terminology in each one of those conspiracy items from the YouGov surveys, words like hoax, bioweapon, man-made, deep state, just to see uh, both to what degree Fox and MSNBC were using that language and mm -hmm. then in kind of what form they were using that language. And so after that immense sort of data uh, curation, what what were the most surprising findings that came out of the study? I, I want to add one very quick postscript to what Please. David just said, which is when he says we, he means he's too modest. He means I. <laughs> well, that's I, I mean, I was an enthusiastic backbencher to all of this. I was involved in figuring out what we were, what we quote were going to do. But I have to say, a very large proportion, somewhere close to one hundred percent, was him. <laughs> well, thank you for that, and we should all be so lucky to have have someone ad advocate on our for, on our behalf. <laughs> yes. well, I'm having a wonderful time with these projects. I keep so tempting him with the idea of turning all these various papers into a book, and he keeps backing off in horror because he's got to use the paper. <laughs> um, but I'm having a wonderful time. He, he's a great, great co-author. Um, surprising. Um, I think two things, and this goes back to my comment a while ago about how somehow I still, after however many years, expect people to respond in the way that I think they should respond to what I understand to be important factual information. Now, again, oh. You know, there's as much of my naivete here, or or socialization as a, as an academic, as a professor. Um, it didn't make much difference. Uh, local cases and particularly fatalities, which you know, I mean, I, again, back to the, the the idea that Trump's COVID diagnosis was going to somehow change people's minds. Mm -hmm. It didn't, and so so we could we found some effects. It's not like people ignored local incidents or particularly local fatalities. Um, but it didn't transform much of anything. Mm -hmm. um, Democrats were less likely to change, to, to move away from conspiracies than Republicans were. Uh, now, again, that partly has to do with where people started and the nature of the conspiracies. It's a slightly complicated argument, but it certainly wasn't. This is not a Republican story. Mm -hmm. This is a, a bipartisan story. Certain different ways. Um, and the other thing that was interesting, I think, is that independents were the ones who were most responsive to local conditions, hmm. to community, again, somewhat broadly defined as congressional district. Um, and it's not because they are more attuned to what's going on in the world and less likely to filter through a partisan lens, I think. M maybe that's it. Th they're less dug in. Um, hmm. th they were, in fact, less knowledgeable they have lower levels of education but the independents who are the least engaged i mean so so again i teach democratic theory all the things we're supposed to believe as through a democratic theory lens thomas jefferson and all that you know you should be a highly educated citizen of the world you should be involved in it's the people who are least involved least educated in a conventional sense who are most responsive 
to what was actually happening around them, mm. who identify as independents or have little ideology, turn out to have relatively low levels of education. So good for them um, and not so good for the rest of us, but but the segment of the population who are least like what the democratic theorists tell us citizens ought to be like turn out to be the people who are in some sense most least captured mm. by conspiracy theories. Mm. Is that is that a fair description, David? Do you think? Who is that? Yeah, I think that was that was completely right. And yeah, that that second point that Jennifer was just making about how the the call it the corrective effect of local COVID-19 incidents in the form of high case and fatality counts in one's local environments, um, that had a corrective effect predominantly on independents. There was very little movement among Democrats, as Jennifer said. Part of that was perhaps sort of just a floor effect on a lot of these conspiracy items. Democratic endorsement of them was extremely low, so if it moved from 10% to 9%, it, you know, it just couldn't have gone down a lot. Um, there were some instances of the same among Republicans. But yeah, consistently, we saw that when you moved from low levels of COVID-19 incidents to high levels of COVID-19 incidents, the greatest difference was consistently among independents. That difference was still somewhat inconsistent and relatively noisy in our data, but, mm. the, but the fact that it was most pronounced was pretty clearly among independents, which... Um, which I do think is striking, if not entirely surprising, it certainly is um, consistent with some of the literature on kind of Zoller-esque information processing and partisan motivated reasoning and that folks who have um, theoretically less firmly entrenched partisan priors should have their attitudes be most malleable. They should be the most right. open to, to um, opinion change. But uh, the theme of the broader issue, the implications of conspiracy thinking on democratic discourse, the implications are not necessarily straightforward or, or kind of normatively positive if, if the least engaged and least knowledgeable segment of the population is that segment that is kind of most uh, willing or able. I, I would add one other set of findings that I might not describe as surprising, but at least let's call it striking. Hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a descriptive finding from our analysis that some respondents uh, endorsed what you might think of as seemingly mutually contradictory conspiracy theories about wow. COVID-19. So for example, some respondents endorsed both that COVID-19 is a hoax and that it is a man-made disease or that the pandemic is both a fraud perpetrated by the deep states and a foreign plot to attack the world. Now, these are not maybe in the strictest sense mutually exclusive, but just kind of logically speaking, it, sh it doesn't make a lot of sense that one could simultaneously believe that the severity of the COVID-19 pandemic is being exaggerated by the quote unquote deep state in order to submarine Donald Trump's chances of re-election, and that the pandemic was intentionally released as a foreign plot to attack the world. If the latter is true, it would be basically impossible to overstate the geopolitical importance of, right. of that event, right? It yeah. would be it would be earth shattering. Right. You couldn't and sell so, that as a movie script. <laughs> no, exactly. It would it would it would get thrown out basically yeah. at the door. 
And and again, this is not exactly surprising as much as striking because it is consistent with a, a fair amount of, to my knowledge, existing research. Uh, I can think of one really excellent paper, for instance, by Michael Wood and some co-workers uh, that demonstrates belief in mutually contradictory conspiracy theories about uh, the death of Princess Diana that oh. we referenced in the paper. Yeah. Uh, Wood and co-workers basically point to um, this fact that people could believe you know, simultaneously that Princess Diana is actually alive and living somewhere else and that she was murdered by the KGB or whatever it was. Mm -hmm that that as proof that there is an underlying predisposition toward conspiracism among some individuals uh, our data do not allow us to examine for this that we we just don't have the sort of psychological battery of items that we would right. need to like point to yes look this respondent has sort of a heightened underlying predisposition toward conspiracism but the pattern of kind of non-rational uh, cons COVID conspiracy endorsements certainly are consistent with this explanation that there could just be a heightened um, predilection toward conspiracy thinking among some of our survey respondents that that we're tapping with these batteries. Hmm. Interesting. And um, this is not a question that I had told you I was going to ask, so I'm going slightly off script. But thinking about what you just said, I'm also you know, the notion that Princess Diana is alive and well, which makes me think of like Jimmy Hoffa and like Elvis. And it's like, at what point is a conspiracy theory kind of become a silly sort of urban legend? And where's the line? And do you know what I mean? Like, if you hear something enough, you you, you start to one, you, you start to just it becomes a, a, like a, a story, like a fairy tale versus like a straight conspiracy theory. And it's doesn't seem as dangerous. But what I think your research is saying, which is so interesting, which is that the that it starts somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it's, it, there's definitely a, a place where this, where this germinates um, um, and time turns these things into less, into less sort of absurd, scary things, but it's still, it's still scary and absurd. <laughs> mm -hmm. Two very quick comments. One is I, it was, I've, you've already said it with time. I mean, Jimmy Hoffa was, John Kennedy was a very long time ago, Princess Diana relatively more recently. So, so the sort of the, edginess kind of dissipates yeah. as you know jimmy hoffa would now be i don't know 97 or i mean i right. mentioned that number. you know john kennedy i mean you know that was he'd be a very very old man if he's still alive and so mm -hmm. the, the so 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 time makes a big difference i mean it just yeah. all makes less sense. but but the other comment you made about it is dangerous and and again i think one distinction that matters certainly for our purposes is that those are essentially apolitical mm. non-political urban myths or, or right. view maybe the kennedy conspiracy theory around the you know the 1960s had a partisan edge but princess diana pretty much doesn't mm -hmm. you know, whereas deep state hoax bioweapon suppressing information if you look at it from the left conspiracies you know those are very powerful partisan tropes and so one line, I don't know if it's a line to draw, but one way to think about them is kind of, you know, throwing salt over your left shoulder is in some sense a conspiracy. You know, I mean, there, there, there are certain <laughs> right. beliefs that are right. kind of goofy, mm -hmm. but don't really matter. Harmless, harmless, yeah. Harmless, maybe that's the right word. Mm -hmm. Whereas partly because these are so current and partly because these are so clearly pointed, mm -hmm. 
you know, so, so what, so conspiracies aren't all alike, I guess. Yeah, so. no, I, I totally agree. And yeah, a public health crisis is not the same thing as yeah, a, maybe a celebrity death. Well, right. okay. some, some of the literature points, and this is again way off script, but some of the literature uh, rejects the word conspiracy because of course it builds in an assumption, uh, a huge amount of assumptions, both moral assumptions. You believe in a conspiracy. I believe in a truth that other people don't know. Right. There's a judgment on um, that word. Yeah. So there's yeah, a yeah. judgment on the word. There's a assumption of a nefarious force in the background mm. doing some terrible thing to right. us. With mal intent of malice. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, again, think of that the legal definition of what counts as seditious conspiracy. Mm. Right. I mean, right. you know, it's a very it's not Princess Diana is living in Tahiti with her lover. Um, right, right. So so anyway, the I I think if one were to go further in this field, which I'm hoping David is going to do, I don't know if I am or not, is the concept of conspiracy need, and, and the language needs just a lot more unpacking and mm. not building assumptions into the words themselves. Yeah. I'll I'll add two things briefly there. Please. One is that I uh, I think Jennifer, perhaps out of modesty, didn't re refer to her own book in this because I think uh, the typology that you and Catherine introduced in Do Facts Matter is actually a super useful one uh, in, in kind of understanding this, the degree to which conspiracy beliefs or misperceptions are actually politically meaningful, right? I mean, you can be uh, you can believe in a conspiracy or not, and then you can act upon that belief and not. So I think really um, what we're sort of interested in implicitly in this paper is that's one square of the two by two typology of right. folks who both believe in politically relevant conspiracy theories about the coronavirus pandemic and who could theoretically be acting upon them that could either be acting at the voting booth because they think that COVID is a hoax and they're going to vote accordingly, or they could be acting in their daily life by going about, uh, even if they have a sore throat and a cough and not getting them tested and not wearing a mask and putting others at danger. So um, I, you know, if, if one believes that COVID-19 is a hoax and yet acts in a self-protective and in a uh, sort of a, a normatively good manner by wearing a mask and by staying home and they're sick, then I guess to some degree, uh, it matters less than if they are kind of acting right. in accordance with that belief. Um, the second thing that I'll add, which which gets both to this idea of how kind of conspiracy thinking can evolve over time on a given issue, um, or just the, the role of time period, um, and some of the ambiguities baked into the, the definition of what we would call a conspiracy theory is that I believe a conspiracy theory is always kind of defined uh, in relation to the best available evidence at that time. And sometimes the best available evidence changes over time. Mm -hmm. um, you can see that even to some degree with COVID-19, where social media companies initially labeled one thing misinformation or, or kind of blocked one thing uh, that largely I believe had to do with the possibility that um, that COVID-19 uh, in its current form had anything to do with sort of gain of function research. This seems to still be somewhat of a gray area, but you know, the, the best available evidence does sort of change over time. It's easier to point to kind of historical examples of this as well, where call it, uh, you know, information gets declassified decades mm -hmm. later, and then right. <laughs> perhaps what was considered a fringe belief, you, you'll have some people feeling a little bit validated that maybe it was somewhat less fringe than than folks thought. Mm -hmm. Hindsight being 
2020 and then some. What, um, so what practical implications do you think work like yours has for, you know, citizens, the media, public sector, public health communications professionals? Um, where do you see this sort of being applied? Uh, well, that's probably your hardest question of the ones that I would, <laughs> um, I would say two things, none of which I have a whole lot of faith in that, that, that I have to say the misinformation book that they were talking about that I wrote some years ago ends with a whimper rather than a bang. I mean, you know, the last chapter says, well, here's a few things we might do to kind of contest misinformation, but actually fact-checking doesn't really do very much. And actually this, you know, so so it's not like we have an answer then or now. But I would say two things. One is, one I've completely forgotten. Oh, one is just the public health community was really blindsided by the growth of conspiracies around vaccines. I mean, it seems to me that the hardest thing to understand, which this paper doesn't address because our data from 2020 and we don't have the 2021 later data. Um, why would people not want to do something that is going to save their lives? I mean, it mm -hmm. seems, you know, there's a kind of a naive, and in fact, the Trump administration, the one good thing it really brilliantly succeeded at was, you know, warp speed. I mean, they created, they paid for, they pushed, they basically created vaccines decades before, or at least years before anybody thought. So, so, so one answer is just, you know, don't be as naive as Jennifer is kind of, you know, that sort of recognize that something that seems like a demonstrable and almost uncontestable public good, that's where the naivete comes in, mm -hmm. it doesn't have that quality for many people. Mm. And, and, you know, blaming them for being idiots is not a useful response to that. I mean, you know, what is it? What's, what, what's underneath the resistance to what seems to me like a fairly obvious self-protective measure. Right. And, and it's not that people are dumb and don't want to protect themselves. So, so, so one, one moral of this story, and you know, this is, I'm not saying this, I mean, hundreds of people are now saying it, um, understand what's going on better, whether this is a psychological proclivity toward conspiracism. So Anyway, so one answer is we need to get more inside the skin, inside the, the social environment, the context, mm -hmm. the family and personal environment of people who resist public health measures on the grounds, at least of conspiracies, a variety of other things. The second thing, which is a more mundane kind of answer, but I actually think would make some difference, is uh, follow media follow a variety of different kinds of media. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're in an MSNBC bubble, you don't understand what's being said on Fox. And if you're in a Fox bubble, you don't understand, you know, and yeah. I mean, again, the analysis that quote we did, which is to say that David did of the media presentations of the conspiracy, these two sets of media said really different things. Right. Talked about different things. Never mind what they said about them when they talked about them. And so, it, you know, I, I haven't done as much of this as I believe one should, but, you know, I should watch Fox News more often. Mm -hmm. um, and Fox News viewers ought to watch Rachel Maddow more often. Um, not in the expectation that people are going to change each other's minds, although that might be nice sometimes, just to hear what's being said. Right. Yeah. It, again, both what's being talked about and how it's being talked about. Mm -hmm. Get outside the bubble, I guess is right. the way of putting it. I only have one thing to add, and it's somewhat less in the spirit of the question. It's it's perhaps less of a practical implication as, as much as a, a relatively abstract or social scientific one. But I think that piggybacking on what Jennifer was saying earlier about how the kind of corrective effects of local COVID incidents were most concentrated among uh, political independence, mm -hmm. which is both 
independents with kind of a capital I and those unaffiliated with either political party. Um, I think that has some interesting implications for how we sort of conceive of independence in American politics. Hmm. So in, in popular depiction, uh, I, I would say that Americans oftentimes like to kind of lionize independence as principled, nonpartisans, they're you know, willing to listen to both sides, they're going to educate themselves and then form an unbiased opinion based on the merits of the facts. Um, but political scientists, since at least the days of Philip Converse, really tend to view independence almost as polar opposites. They're uninformed, they're non-ideological. I think our findings kind of perhaps indicate to some degree that both conceptions have, have merits. Um, I don't want to draw too many conclusions from them, but you know, we do on the one hand show that independents and, and unaffiliated respondents uh, were the least politically engaged. They were the least attentive to news about COVID-19. They were kind of Converse's disengaged uh, independents, and yet they were also the most responsive to local COVID-19 incidents. So they, they were the ones who behaved in, in kind of a quote unquote normatively correct manner in the sense of they responded to objective information about the severity of the COVID-19 pandemic and made their beliefs more accurate. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, I don't quite have a, you know, an exclamation point on the end of that, except just to say that, you know, perhaps it, it, it is certainly um, a, a bit of a puzzle, I think, for social mm -hmm. scientists to, to work out in terms of what does it mean that American democracy kind of obtains a lot of its, um, fluidity in terms of shifts in public attitudes from its least engaged citizens, either moving in a, in a sort of correct or non-correct manner. You've alluded a couple of times to some um, some subsequent work that you guys are working on. So I wanted, uh, as my last question, to ask um, what you're, you're currently looking at and if there's any upcoming papers or books that you'd like to share with our listeners. I certainly hope there will be some upcoming papers. Um, at, at the broadest level, the next sort of project that Jennifer and I are working on is we're seeking to examine um, the conditions under which misperceptions either are sustained or are attenuated in the presence of corrective information, again, using the COVID-19 pandemic as a case study. So we're uh, once again using this YouGov economist data that we have, we're focusing on kind of a different um, set of outcome variables in this project. Um, the biggest one is that we were kind of grappling with this empirical puzzle that uh, over time, over the course of 2020, we observed that survey respondents become less and less accurate in their assessment of the number of deaths from the COVID-19 mm. pandemic, Interesting. Um, which felt surprising to us because if anything, the there was just more and more media coverage. There was more and more lived experience to draw upon as more right. and more Americans either got COVID themselves, knew someone who got COVID, um, et cetera. So we, we want to try to understand why this misperception about the number of COVID deaths sustained. Is it just simply due to innumeracy? Is it due to partisan motivated reasoning? Is it exposure to misinformation? So we are doing a bit of um, a more sophisticated uh, content analysis and, and a structural topic model on a broader uh, corpus of, of cable TV news transcripts mm. um, for this project that, that I'll be really excited to hopefully have some findings from soon. 
I just want to underline what David's already said, which is both Republicans and Democrats, Republicans more than Democrats, but both went the same direction. Republicans underestimated the number of deaths that are likely to happen this year, which is how the survey question is worded. Mm-hmm. The closer they got to the end of the December, i.e. the end of this year, not only did a higher proportion of them underestimate, but a fair number predicted a smaller number of deaths than had already occurred on the date of the survey, Mm. right? So if 200,000 people had died, a third to a half of Republicans said only 100,000 people are going to die. Okay, I see. Even though as of that date, it had already happened. Right, I see Um, what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, Democrats overestimated Ah. the number of likely deaths. Small, fewer Democrats misperceived than did Republicans, but they also increased in their misperceptions over the year, even though the year itself, of course, was coming closer to an end and epidemiological models got better. Right. So Democrats over overestimated, Republicans underestimated, way past the point at which this is simply innumeracy the inability to distinguish, you know, which is truly part of the story, but anyway. Right. No, no, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Consistently. So we're trying to see whether this is again, a media story or whether local impact of the type that David was talking about earlier, you know, people extrapolate from what's happening in their own local communities. Um, Mm. We don't know. So we haven't written the paper yet. So. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward. I'm very much looking forward to reading it. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really fascinating talk. And I, I, again, best of luck with the rest of your research and I wish you both a really happy holiday season. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. This podcast is a production of Hopkins Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu. Thank you.